Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Emelaic. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us. When you gather grain, don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your mother and father in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come, take refuge, reward you fully what you have done. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after younger men, whether richer or poor. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, You are witnesses that today I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her de dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Well, as Marcus said, if you've been with us for the last month or so, you know we've been going through the book of Ruth. I have really, really loved this book and this whole series. It's an amazing and inspiring story. It's the kind of story that you actually want to revisit over and over again. And one of the cool things about revisiting a story is that you start to see new things in it the second and third time you read it that you never really saw the first time. On our first journey through Ruth, we have rightly focused and centered on Ruth and Naomi. They are the main characters, two women who in the first few minutes of the story, they lose everything that they have. They each respond in their own different ways. Naomi responds with bitterness that borders on pure despair. Ruth responds with tenacity and a determination to do whatever it takes to care about Naomi. By the end of the story, redemption has come for both of them. And as Marcus shared last week, redemption touches us as well. The faithful courage of Ruth is met by the powerful love of God. And generations later, this family tree brings us Jesus Christ, God with us. Next Sunday, Ruth Reimagined. It's going to be really special. I hope you guys can all be here for that. We actually needed an extra week to get ready for Ruth Reimagined because there's so many pieces that we had to coordinate. So today is a bonus day. It's a chance for us to explore, again, to revisit the story of Ruth, but go down a side street and see what we can see down here to see the story from another point of view, from another perspective. And that's actually our word for the day, perspective, kiddo. So say it with me, perspective. Good. So the children's book, A Tale of Two Beasts, which I read often to Paxton, illustrates the importance of perspective, if you know the story. A Tale of Two Beasts starts with, um, from the perspective of a little girl. She's here on the left. She finds a small creature in the woods. She takes that creature home. She dresses it. She puts a sweater on it. She walks it. She feeds it. She plays with it. She shows it off to all of her friends, and she's just so happy. Then the story starts all over again, this time from the perspective of the small creature in the woods. From the small creature's perspective, the little girl isn't a savior. 
she's a kidnapper. <laughs> it's not been cared for. It's been tormented. It's been poked and prodded by all these other kids. It's been fed gross food and tied up and misunderstood entirely. That's the power of perspective. The little girl's not necessarily wrong, and the little creature's not necessarily wrong. They're each just seeing things from their own points of view. And as we've mentioned, in Ruth, we've seen things from the perspective of the main characters, Ruth and Naomi. What I want to do this morning is revisit and retell the story from another perspective, from the perspective of Boaz. I'm convinced that the world could use a lot more Boazes. I've never met anyone named Boaz, so we need more of them out there. Of course, what I mean is uh, we need a lot more people who are like Boaz, right, who are willing to courageously change the fabric of society in order to care for the most vulnerable. So let's do a quick recap, recap of what we know about Boaz and what he does in this story. We don't know much about Boaz, to be honest with you. He um, is a man. Check. Got that. He owns property because he can hire workers to be in his fields. Check. Got that. He's described in Ruth chapter 1 as wealthy and influential. Wealthy and influential. These words, wealthy and influential, don't translate super well into English. They do tell us that he has money and power and influence, yes. And they also say something deeper. These are words that reflect on his character, that reflect on his virtue. He was respected by the members of his community. He was a good guy, we're supposed to understand. You can see this when he comes to greet the women and men who work in his fields. The first words out of his mouth in Ruth 2.4 are, the Lord be with you. And all of his workers respond, the Lord bless you. Boaz. This isn't a simple howdy-do, run-of-the-mill good morning. These are richly intentional liturgical words. This was a prayer. This was a blessing offered by Boaz to his employees at the start of their workday. And his employees responded in, in kind, sending the blessing right back to him. It's an exchange full of respect and full of dignity. They're reminding themselves that their work isn't just about making money. They're also working towards the Lord and for the Lord. The way they work, the way they conduct themselves, the way they support each other, all of this speaks to their relationship with God. It's a great reminder to us that our faith isn't confined to Sundays, right? Our faith informs Monday through Friday. Our faith should make us pleasant to work with. Amen? It's a blessing to work with Boaz. When he looked out over his field that day, he knew and he cared about his workers, which means that he noticed when there was a new worker in his field, someone who needed his care. He told her, Ruth, that day to come back to his field every single day after that, that she would be safe with him, that she would be able to gather food in peace with him. Ruth, totally confused, disoriented by this kindness, is like, why? Boaz, like, why do you care about me? I'm just a foreigner. Why are you being so generous? He explains, I've heard about you. I know you're a foreigner. And I know that you've cared for Naomi. I know you've left your home and family. I know you've devoted yourself to her care. The more he hears about Ruth, the more his generosity just flows to her. So he gives Ruth grain, more than enough food to meet her needs. And then in chapter 3, when she comes to him in the middle of the night, vulnerable and exposed, he doesn't take advantage of her. Instead, he honors her courageous requests and agrees to care for her in the proper way through marriage. Even then, as Marcus said last week, he doesn't cut any corners in the process. He finds a creative way to get the next-in-line family redeemer to relinquish his claim to Naomi's property. And then in Ruth 4, by the city gates, in front of many witnesses, he makes it all official. He will step in, and he will marry Ruth. And in doing so, Boaz helps restore their family. He's transforming their poverty into stability. And when the time comes, Boaz says he's going to step aside so that any son born to Ruth will continue in Elimelech's line, not his own. 
That's the core message of this whole story. Redemption and restoration are possible. Redemption, restoration are possible. There's an alternative to tragedy and despair, no matter how dark it can be. A godly woman and a godly man together showing us what God's Hesed love looks like. But somewhere along the line, in our minds, we've made this a romantic love story. Boaz becomes the biblical version of Mr. Darcy with chiseled abs, a top hat, a white horse, a fancy British accent, right? And Ruth, we make her stunningly beautiful, a biblical Cinderella, a diamond in the rough, whose beauty just sparkles through the tatters in her clothes and the dirt on her flawless face. And we've matched these two up, like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and we've made them into a movie that we might find on the Hallmark Channel or in a Sunday school class. This is literally a thing that we found on the internet, right? Ruth and Boaz, a love story. But there's nothing in the Bible about that kind of romantic love. The exchanges between Ruth and Boaz aren't driven by flirtatious glances or sappy romance. They're grounded in mutual respect for each other. The author of this story wants, to, wants us to see that Boaz recognizes not Ruth's rosy red lips, but her hesed love, unflinching and pure for Naomi. He chooses to marry her not because of how she looks, but because of who she is, not because of what she can give him, but because of what he can give her. And what he can give her comes at great cost to himself. What he can give comes at cost. It's highly likely that a man of Boaz's age and status is already married bombshell, right? That's not in the Hallmark movie. But the most likely scenario is that Boaz already has a family, already has a wife or wives, already has kids, already has responsibilities and obligations. Taking care of Ruth and Naomi, helping them establish and continue their own family line, it's not a fairy tale ending. It's work. It takes energy and money and, frankly, more work. It's a lifelong commitment to do something that he didn't have to do and that no one expects him to do, and that no one, that won't really actually benefit him at all. In fact, it most likely hurt his reputation in the community to marry Ruth. Remember, she's a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. And Israelites are not supposed to marry foreign women or have children with them. You marry a Moabite, and before you know it, you're worshiping the gods of the Moabites, and it's a slippery slope into full-blown idolatry. So the best and safest way to engage with a Moabite in your field, is to stay away from them. Amen? That was a trick, amen. I got you. (laughs) But that's exactly what Mr. So-and-so does, right? The other potential family redeemer. When he's confronted with the idea of marrying Ruth, no, thanks but no thanks. Not interested in that. Stay away. And Boaz could have done the same. He could have easily backed out. No one would have blamed him. No one would have judged him. It was a sensible thing to do. Stick with your tribe. Protect your own. Take care of your family. Instead, Boaz, a man of wealth and privilege, sacrifices his time, his money, his reputation to take care of the Moabite he finds in his field. This is a picture for us of how God uses power. In God's hands, power is never used to take advantage of someone or to gain more power for God, God always uses power for others on their behalf. This is Jesus who didn't capture or grasp or cling to power for his own sake. No, at every turn, Jesus gave up divine privilege. He took the humble position of a slave. He used his power 
to save and to serve others. When we experience the story from Naomi's perspective, we're the recipients of that amazing grace, right? And often that's where we are. We're hurting. We're struggling. We need help. But if we're honest, we also often experience the story from Boaz's perspective. We're the ones with privilege. We're the ones with power. We're the ones with opportunity. And the invitation from that perspective is to show the world God's heart by using our power to serve others. Now, I admit that this example is actually pretty intimidating. I mean, Boaz marries Ruth. That's a pretty huge commitment, right? But I think there are aspects of this story that make kindness a little bit less intimidating. That's what I want to spend our time on this morning. First, Boaz's giving is shaped by his own experiences. Boaz's giving is shaped by his own experiences. As I said a few weeks back, as I said a few weeks back, it just so happened that Boaz was the son of a woman named Rahab, right? Or maybe she was his grandmother or great-grandmother. Genealogies can sometimes skip generations biblically, but regardless, Rahab was his people. She wasn't an Israelite. She was a Canaanite. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. And Rahab's Canaanite blood was flowing through Boaz's veins. That's Boaz's thing. That's his field. He's a foreigner. When Boaz saw an immigrant woman in his fields, he could sympathize with her. His connection to Ruth wasn't random. He could see the world from her perspective, and that perspective tugs at his heart. He feels it. So I think the question we can ask ourselves is, what's our thing? What's our field? What have we gone through? What's our story? What tugs at our hearts? Our stories, even when they're painful, especially when they're painful, allow us to sympathize with other people who are going through something similar. You have an immediate connection with them. Shared pain can forge our souls together. My mom had cancer, and it was horrible. But now she has an incredible connection with other survivors. I've been in small groups when someone opens up about an addiction that they have, and then someone else also opens up about an addiction that they have. And they say, me too. So often we instinctively hide these parts of our stories, right? Maybe you've gone through a divorce. Maybe you battle mental illness. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe you struggle with parenting. Maybe you've experienced abuse. The twists and the turns that God has brought us through in our stories are the very things that create connection and sympathy and solidarity with others who have shared those same experiences. So Boaz was the son of an immigrant. He was an Israelite with a lot of Canaanite in him. It was a hard part of his story, but it was the part of his story that allowed him to connect with Ruth. What's your story? What have you endured? What hard things have shaped you? It's really hard to genuinely connect with others if we're hiding. So don't hide. Don't fake. Don't pretend. You are who you are, and it's okay to own that. Tangent. Our connecting points don't always have to be super deep or full of pain. I'm an oldest child, so when I find someone else who's an oldest child, that's a basic connecting point with them. I dated a girl who was a Mormon. I have a deep knowledge of the Mormon faith, so when I find someone else with Mormon experience, it's a connecting point. Maybe you've been in the military. Maybe you're bilingual. Maybe you lean conservative. Maybe you know your Enneagram number. Maybe you really like video games. 
There are a lot of kids in this church who really like video games. That's a connecting point. It's enough to make a stranger a friend. That's step one. Know your field. Know your story. Know your experience and own it. Next, pay attention to who shows up in your field. You know, Boaz isn't out looking for another wife. Ruth shows up in his field. He doesn't have to go find her. He just has to notice her. I don't think we have to hunt for people to connect with. I think God puts them into our lives. For example, a few months ago, we were driving downtown Haverhill. We stop at an intersection, and a man comes into my field, so to speak. He's laying on the ground on the sidewalk across from the intersection. And I just watch cars just drive by. And I was pretty tempted to follow suit. I mean, we had all the kids in the car. They're hungry. They're tired. I could just pretend I didn't see him. I didn't owe him anything. I didn't know him or his story. Amen? Trick, amen. <laughs> I look at Megan. I, like, look at the kids. And I stop the car, and I pull over, and I get out, and I get on the ground, and I ask this man how he's doing and what he needs. And he says he's injured, and he can't walk, and his leg hurts. And I help him sit up. I got him against the, his back against the barricade. Another car pulls up to the stop sign. I flag him down. And I ask him if they'll call 911. And I waited there with this man, talking, offering reassurance and support until a police officer showed up and blessedly took charge of the situation, as only police officers can. I didn't do anything huge in that moment. I simply paid attention to the man who showed up in my field. And I noticed him, and I stopped, and I did what I could. I don't think Boaz actually does anything outlandish. He went to work like he did every day, and he noticed someone who needed help, and he stopped, and he did what he could. There are people at our work. At, they live on our streets. They go to school with our kids. They're at Little League games, and they're at martial arts classes. They're in the places we consistently go, the grocery stores, the gyms, the supermarkets, the restaurants. But we're often so hyper-focused on ourselves that we rarely see the people around us. We're too busy to notice a coworker who's going through something difficult. Too busy to notice a parent on the playground who's overwhelmed by a situation with their kid. Too busy to notice a student in class who's much quieter than they normally are. People are in our fields. We don't have to go out of our way. We can see them. We can stop. We can help. Like one of our hopes with the little brown cards every offering Sunday morning is that you can see and name the people who are in your fields. Who are the people that are in your fields? Finally, start small. Boaz didn't jump into marriage right away. Sure, that's the big dramatic life-changing ending, but it didn't start that way. It started with a small thing. Just stay in this field. Stick with the others. Take some food home. Come back tomorrow. Stay in this field. Stick with the others. Get some food. Come back tomorrow. Sometimes we can get so enthralled with the idea of doing something big and dramatic in our lives, this life-changing thing, that we forget that the big things always start with small things. It's like what happens in the movie Frozen 2 when Anna finds herself in the darkest moments in the story. Olaf, her trusted companion, has flurried away which means that the magic that kept him alive has disappeared, which means that Elsa, her sister, the source of that magic, has also gone away. So here we have Anna alone, without Olaf, without Elsa. She's in a cave, and she doesn't know what to do. She's not sure how to keep going. 
And since she's in a Disney movie, she sings a song. <laughs> the next right thing, right? One of the lyrics goes this way. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. There's a backstory to that song. The co-director of both Frozen films, Chris Buck, lost his son. And the music producer, Anu Page, on the film lost his daughter. And the song that Anna sings was inspired by those two people who experienced devastating loss in their life. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to keep going. It all felt so big. But they thought that they could do the next right thing. If we wait around for the big, dramatic, life-changing things, we'll never do anything. But if we ask God to show us the next right thing, we'll likely discover that every day provides us with an opportunity to do the next right small thing. Like volunteering a Saturday morning to chaperone a foster care party at JG's on June 17th, just saying. Like mentoring someone at the Boys and Girls Club. Like becoming a book buddy for a third grader. Like joining a small group. Like meeting a friend for lunch to check in. Like walking with somebody as you follow Christ together. Daily grind. Sometimes those smaller things do, cumul do culminate in a big dramatic thing. But that's not why we do them. We don't do the small things in order to get to the big things. In fact, most often, we never even see the big things until after they've happened. We do the small things because we see someone in our field. We see that they need help. And God nudges us towards them. So I'm not advocating for heroic action. I don't even think Boaz is a hero here. I think he's a normal person. I like to think he's a normal person who has been changed through his story and through his experiences by an extraordinary love, by God's love. We also are normal people, and we also have been touched and changed by an extraordinary love. We have tasted for ourselves the healing grace and the forgiveness of God. Jesus Christ loved us when we were his enemies. He found us when we were lost. He forgave us when we didn't even ask for it. He died for us when we didn't deserve it. He took our death and he gave us life. And so now God's life is in us. It's planted within us. It's making us the kind of people who, like Boaz, like Jesus, give what we have for someone else's good. People who see God in our stories, even in those painful parts. People who see the Moabites in our field. People who do the next right thing. And the next right thing. Trusting that God will take it where God wants to take it. One of the coolest parts, I think, about being part of the body of Christ is that the next right thing looks really different for each of us. If you're not really sure what the next right thing might be for you, then your homework is to pray about that. To ask God to show you someone who's in your field and to pray for that person and to ask for the next right thing that God is nudging you to do for that person, regardless of how small. As Marcus reminded me this week, we all have lots of really good ideas. We can come up with lots of really great ideas. We don't have to do all the good ideas, right? Ask God which ones are the right ideas for right now. And then do them. Like, actually do them. Actually do them. I'm convinced that if we remain attentive to our fields with a real willingness to act on what we see, we'll discover that God's, and it just so happened, all those things are happening all around us. 
And like Boaz, we'll find that as we do the next right thing, we will step into God's much bigger story of redemption. Amen? Amen. That was a real one. Good. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so honored, so privileged to be part of your story, that you saw us and found us and saved us and put the broken pieces back together and are still putting the broken pieces back together of our lives. Lord, we need that. We need your restoration. We need your healing. We need your love. Sometimes we need it so desperately. And Lord, as you put us back together, as you empower us with your life, help us not to hoard that. Help us not to keep our fields for ourselves and get as much as we can out of them. Help us to be generous. Help us to see those who are in our fields, who are next to us, who are in this life with us. And Lord, give us the eyes to see and the courage to do the next thing that you ask us to do. No matter how big, no matter how small. And to do so know that we're, knowing that we're doing it in your name and for your sake. And that we're doing it so that people in this world can see and can know the great love that you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name and for his sake. Amen.